everybody out there until any time and here on Zoom. This is part two of our class on the 49 levels of Tuma. Um, section one, which is all the philosophy, the core Torah ideas that are the frame that form the framework of what we're learning now have already been recorded. They're part one. And um, hmm. and um, they are not sure what this is. And they will uh, be, there'll be a series. You'll see part one and part two of the 49 levels of Tama. Okay. So based on everything we learned already, let's go into the examples that we find um, depicted in Egyptian cultural self-expression, how they thought about things. And let's see how <clears throat> core Jewish ideas ideas that were known to Noah and his children, even language, as we saw today from Rav Hirsch and the Kuzari, language that was the core, the key uh, foundation of the, all the various languages that evolved, uh, how they showed up uh, in distorted version, in a impure or tame version in the Egyptian culture, and how HaKadosh Baruch when he told Moshe to write the Torah, takes these very same ideas and cleans them up and restores them to their proper, more abstract, deeper, nuanced <clears throat> understanding. So let's start with how the Torah starts. You know, when we think about a human being, we think about uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's statement that a human being is at Selem Elohim. And that in Perak Bays, we are told that Hashem blew a neshama into the nose of a person. Look in part two, what, number one right here. Formed man, dirt of the earth, meaning we are organic material, physical, but we also have a neshama. Now, Judaism, as we have learned, thinks about the neshama, as Nefeshachim explains, as neshima, breath, divine exhale, not literally, but rather as it is understood conceptually that Hashem's thoughts, Hashem's self-expression influences the way we think. And that explains why every human being intuitively has a sense that they matter, they have a purpose, they're a creator, they can express themselves, they have something to add. That's the most godly aspect of God in us. In fact, when Hashem says to Moshe, when they ask you my name, when you come to the Jews in Egypt, tell them my name is Eke Asher Eke. I will be what I will be. The essence of freedom of self-expression. And yet we're in, this is, exists in a material body. And so you have a very interesting dichotomy of a limited human being with an expansive, eternal, unlimited sense of um, imagination, creativity, um, you know, chedushim, uh, ideas, new ideas, insights. So we the two live together, okay? Now, when you get into Egypt, you see that they had a similar concept, but what they did with it, they number one, physicalized it, and number two, they used it exclusively for their own self-aggrandizement and to give themselves powers to rule and to dominate and to control. So look at this picture here. This is a picture, okay? Right here is a picture, as you see, of two gods. The god here on the left is forming man on a potter's wheel. Okay. And the god on the right, which is called Heket, is putting the ankh, the key of life, as we'll see shortly, into the nose of this creature, this little human being. Okay. Scrolling back up, this image comes from the Dirderup temple. The god on the left is called Knum. And he's creating the Pharaoh, of course, the Pharaoh being created directly by God, thereby has godly rights to rule and basically do whatever the heck they want at everybody else's expense. On the right, the goddess Heket is instilling life, the Ankh symbol, into the nostril of the king. Okay, so if you scroll down further, this, um, this Ankh, okay, this concept of the Ankh, this key of life right here, go scroll even further. Many examples of different gods. This is a lion, this is a falcon, but they're always putting the Ankh, this key of life, into the nose of the Pharaoh, thereby establishing that this Pharaoh is, has divine, a divine soul in them, unlike everybody else. 
So number one, they had a concept of the combination of a physical matter and a spirit of life that went through the nose, but they physicalized it and they really thought of it as a key of life. And they associated it with various gods that they, which were generally animals that they, as we learned today, they took the mushal, never the nimshal, and they worshiped the mushal itself. Interestingly enough, and this of course goes straight to the Makos, you know, the Nile, as you know, was there, it, it was the, it provided all their sustenance. So when it overflowed every year, uh, what came in the aftermath of that was this, they were inundated with frogs, okay? So this was normal. There were many frogs in the Nile. So the Egyptians believed that the frogs were created with the, what just happened? The frogs were created with the ooze of the Nile. Okay, here we are. Let's go back and find it. Here we go. The frogs were created in the ooze left after the Nile's inundation. Okay, so Hashem, after turning the Nile to blood, then goes ahead and turns, takes the frogs who were considered um, ultimately a divine representation. And he makes the frogs not what they are conceived of in Egypt, which is fertility, life, right? The aftermath of the inundation of the Nile, but into aggressive attackers. Do you see here, this God Hekmet is a frog, okay? Hekmet was a goddess of childbirth and fertility in ancient Egypt. She was depicted as a frog, as a woman with the head of a frog. These frogs symbolize fruitfulness and new life. It is thought that the priestesses were trained midwives. Okay, here is another frog god with the ankh in one hand, the ankh, she's holding it. The other hand, she's extending it to the pharaoh, all right? And, uh, and so you have here two ideas, the idea of the soul being bestowed in the nose to a physical creature, and the idea of the frogs, which of course the Kodesh Baruch Hu turns against them because Hashem says, you think this is your life source. It's I'm going to turn it against you because you used all of these ideas to engrandize yourselves, empower yourselves at the expense of everybody else, harming everybody else, making everybody else have no rights, no status, no ability to provide for themselves, nothing. And I'm going to turn your own blessing, so to speak, against you. Now, next. <clears throat> the word ankh, the word anochi, they sound the same, right? Anochi. Now, so what we have to learn here is, again, an essence of Tumah. The language was also made impure. There are certain key words and roots, as we've learned, that go all the way back, Lashon HaKodesh, to the very beginning, and they remained in, uh, and were discoverable in the languages, many of the languages that evolved in the ancient world. So um, the even the word anochi, you know, we, we don't even have to say that the Torah used the word Anochi because it was taking the Ankh concept and saying, oh, you think the life is bestowed by the Ankh? It's really Anochi. It's more that the whole root of Ankh already existed. Okay. And they had it. They had it in their in their lexicon, so to speak. Rav Nechemia says, what is, that? what is Anochi? It is an Egyptian word. Okay. But the Egyptian word easily can be based on the original Lashon HaKodesh root. Okay, and he shows, you could read this yourself, to what is this comparable to a king whose son was captured, spent a long time with the captors. He learned the speech of the captors when his father had taken vengeance on his enemies and brought him back. He wanted to converse with him in his own language. He did, but the son did not know it. So what did the father do? He spoke in the language of the captors. So going back and pulling out words that were originally Lashon HaKodesh words and restoring them, and these were also familiar words to, to the Jewish people at that time. Pesikta Rabbah says uh, a similar thing, that Anochi is Lashon Ahava, or Lashon Chiba, it shows love, and it shows connection. And when Hashem said Anochi, Hashem Elokecha, spoke in the singular to every single person. Because in Egypt, only the Pharaoh, only the priests, only the sons of the Pharaoh, only the daughters, only a very, very elite group had a soul, had any connection to God. By us, it's Anochi Hashem Elokecha to every single person. Okay, look at the Kuzari, look at Rav Hirsch. The Kuzari believes that different tongues have more in common than one might think because they all derive from one original language. Rav Hirsch says the same thing about Migdal Bavel when it says everybody had Safa Achas, one language, Devarim Achadim, similar words, is that there were certain core roots and phonetical sounds that everybody had. Okay, so even Lashon HaKodesh had to be 
redeemed. Here's another example of Tumah that had to be restored to Tara. This is the what we call the, um, the, the Egyptian judgment scene. All right. So basically, they were obsessed with the afterlife, absolutely obsessed. Most of their life efforts were spent on the afterlife. 10% of their life was spent on life, and 90% of their efforts were spent on the afterlife. They built insane tombs for themselves, as you can see when you scroll down, filled them up with treasures because they didn't know how long the journey to the afterlife would go. And in this Egyptian judgment scene, though, this is uh, also something that makes the shot of the, you see this, I'm sorry, jump out at us. What they basically have here, their conception of, how it goes in the afterlife is that there is a judgment and there's afterlife or there's not afterlife. And they were very, very terrified that they wouldn't have an afterlife. They were so obsessed with their afterlife. They were so busy as we're going to see in a moment with their mummification and they're preserving themselves physically for their afterlife. They were, they, they worked on their afterlife from the second they could. I mean, these tombs that they built took decades and decades and there was no unemployment in Egypt because everybody got their degree in rock hocking 101 to build those tombs and hock into those mountains and dig and dig and make insane palaces in the mountains where the tombs were um, in the Valley of the Kings. Now, here's what happens. So the person dies. Of course, this is the only the pharaohs, only the priests. And they would go up to heaven. You see in the top left corner here, there's this person that comes up to heaven and there's this jury sitting here. Now, really, uh, from what I learned is there's 42 members of the jury, 21 and 21. And the, the dead, the soul has to now make a confession. And uh, there's a link here to the 42 negative confessions, if you want to read them. And, you know, they sound kind of just, you know, all the good things they did in their life. And uh, if you look at this depiction, this only has 14. Seven of these judges are holding the young and seven are not. And that means that seven are convinced that this soul deserves the afterlife, but seven are not. In which case, what happens next? If there's a hung jury, so to speak, okay? So now this uh, dead person is taken by the god Nubius right here, the dog, and they're bringing to judgment. And the judgment is a scale. Now, what happens on this scale is they put a feather, which is called ma'at or amat, probably from the word emes, emet, on one side, and they figuratively, not in real life, they put the heart of the king, the pharaoh, on the other side of the scale. Now, in real life, they took the heart and they put it in an alabaster canister and they put it in a big golden box and they buried it in the tomb with the mummy. But in their mythology, they take the heart of the dead person and they weigh it against the feather. And what that is trying to say is they're judging if your heart, your, your, your core identity is light or heavy, meaning are you pure? Sort of like, you know, no longer bogged down by physical, um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, corruptions. Have you, have you purified yourself? If the heart is heavier than the feather, it means you're not pure. And you're not, and the gods are not happy with you. You haven't pleased them. You haven't made that, given them enough. You haven't lived up, you haven't emulated them enough by being like them, controlling, powerful, you know, uh, all, all powerful. So if your heart is heavy, you don't go to the afterlife. And then this dog, crocodile monster creature here under the scale consumes this, the person who has died. And that's it. There's no olam haba. However, if they survive this and the heart is not as heavy as the feather, then as you can see, they are go into this inner chamber here where they, or they meet the god Amun-Re, the sun god, and they enter Nubius, the dog, the god of the afterlife, brings them into Amun-Re, the sun god. And of course, then they can, although they're buried in the Valley of the Kings on the west of the Nile where the sun sets, they go to Amun-Re, the sun, which means they're going to rise again. That's on the east. Okay, so now we understand the pshat. When Hashem said to Paro, look in the Pasuk, Shemos 9.34, and in Paros, he's made his heart heavy. Hashem said to Moshe, I'm going to lock him into his bad habits to such a degree that he's not going to be able to do the right thing. No matter the pressure to send the Jewish people out and give these people freedom, he's not going to be able to. And essentially what that means is his heart is going to be heavy. He's not going to earn an afterlife. He will not be able to redeem himself. He will be lost. Like Ramam says in the Hilchos Tshuva of chapter five, it's, Hashem never interferes with Bechira except in extreme cases like Paro. He's not salvageable. He can't redeem himself no matter what. 
And here you understand that the pshat, that when Paro heard, I'm going to make your heart heavy, that was a tremendous threat. That's the worst possible thing that could happen to you if you were a pharaoh in Egypt, because that means you have no afterlife. Okay. Here are some pictures of tombs. This is a tomb we were in, Ramses, Ramses III. It's elaborate. It's enormous. It was buried till recently, and therefore there's these magnificent carvings and paintings everywhere depicting their life, depicting their self-concept. And they built these tombs for themselves to be, you know, be their ab abode through this long day till the afterlife. They didn't know how long it would take. Here's another picture of the actual mummy case out of stone, sarcophagus, uh, inside the depths of the tomb. The whole ceiling, which is brilliantly, I mean, beautifully preserved, is a depiction of the sun rising in the east, setting in the west, rising in the east, and all the people that hope to be on um, that, you know, re-rise again with the sun. And here we're also going to discuss the rituals that they involved themselves with on behalf of the dead. They were obsessed with their death. They did everything for their death. This is survival, what we call survival mode, which means fear of death, living out your whole life out of fear of death, hoping not to die, ensuring your continued existence in ways that were absolutely bizarre. You know, think about our, our culture. When a person is nifter, especially in Eretz they take them straight from, they die. Literally three hours later, they wrap them in a talus, put them in the ground, goodbye. That's it. That's the whole thing. The extreme opposite goes on, went on over here. Not only did they build these elaborate tombs for themselves, look, look at this ritual, the opening of the mouth of Tutankhamun. okay? Ancient Egyptian gods required a lot of attention. The Book of the Dead and wall inscriptions are full of details about rites and rituals for specific gods. Now, every everyday priest took care of the statues of the god as if they were living people, okay? In daily ritual called opening of the mouth, priests gave the statues offerings of food in the morning and evening, okay? Clothe them in clean linen and new jewelry and had new makeup applied. These rich rituals were performed in sanctuaries in which only priests and pharaohs were allowed to attend and within the temple. Ordinary people had no idea that what went on in these sanctuaries. Sometimes the same rituals were performed on mummies. This is what they did to pharaohs. See, everybody who had money mummified themselves in Egypt. If you go to the Met, if you go to the Cairo Museum, there's endless amounts of mummies. Anybody who had you know, enough money mummified themselves. But not everybody had these tombs the elaborate mummy coffins, but King Tut, for example, which was the most recent one we found, and others were had these elaborate mummy cases, and they were treated, they were served, they were dressed and fed and perfumed and who knows what, okay? Now, again, only the God, the priests and the pharaohs, okay, were allowed in the temple, only the pharaohs and the very important people got mummified, and had all these rituals done to them, okay? Um, of course, these shrines, they had also incense and all of that stuff. They made offerings, uh, anointed the statue, dressed it in clothes and all that. Okay, they, um, they even, um, if you see in the temple, there was a temple, 34 BC, large dangerous animals, crocodiles and hippopotami were sacrificed as symbols of chaos, and bulls were sacrificed. They got very involved with um, their statues and their mummies, all right? Their, their gods and themselves. Look at number five. Let's talk about the mummies for a minute. They knew about the number eight and they knew about the color blue. So the way it worked was um, they took a mummy and they, I'm looking at, no, I don't have a picture of it, but you can Google it. You know how the Russian dolls are like little ones and then a bigger one, a bigger one, a bigger one is like they're in these cases. Well, that's what they did with the mummies. They took a mummy case and they decorated it up super fancy, certainly for a king. Then they put the mummy case in another mummy case, four mummy cases. And then they put the four mummy cases in boxes, four boxes. This picture here is the eight box of King Tut's mummy. So there's four boxes inside and four mummy cases inside. And as you see, it's blue. And uh, of course, the number eight is very important. And you can Google King Tut's, you know, when they, the whole thing, when they found King Tut's tomb. There's tons of fascinating pictures. 
Here is the fourth mummy mask, the famous one of King Tut. By the time you got to the fourth mummy case, it was massive, okay? And uh, of course, and then that went in the box. So look at the Egyptians' mummy because their physical form was an integral part of their afterlife. Again, the physical, all right? Being a practical people, liking what they could see and touch, existing without a physical body was unacceptable to them. They couldn't, as we spoke about today earlier, they could not conceive of the abstract. It was entirely physical, which is why Hashem comes in the second Dibra of Aserisa Dibros and says, that's it. No more physical images. No more statues. End of it all. Okay? It's, it's a distortion. As we learned today, it's the mushal. It's not the nimshal. You got to do away with the mushal and understand the message, which is the nimshal. Okay? Again, death was a complex affair. I'm looking at the red here. Originally, this was only for the pharaohs. This whole thing with having an afterlife and being, you know, all that. But the rich soon believed they could take part in the afterlife. And eventually the poor believed they could join the ranks of the blessed dead too. All right. But the pharaohs wanted to ensure that this was theirs, their domain only, because then, of course, they had divine rights. And once you have divine rights and you have the divine afterlife, then you could do whatever you wanted. And that's called survival of the fittest. Okay. Here, let's go beyond the Ankh and the soul of life and the afterlife and the eight and all of that. Let's look at this. This is a picture in the Ramesseum, which is one of Ramses' palaces, uh, temples really. And look at it. If you um, look at it, you'll see, try to make it a little bigger here. This here is a picture of the Pharaoh, Ramses, seated within a tree called the tree of life. And over here on the left, you can't see it as much. There is a God who is writing his name on a leaf in the tree of life. And here is a God on the right and another God over here, the falcon with the beak. And they are writing his name on a tree in the tree of life. So in their mind, there was something called the tree of life that you, the gods, bestowed upon you the right to be part of, so to speak, um, the organic the light life on this earth, you know, itself and the source of life. Remember Paro, we learn, said about himself, the river is mine and I made myself. It was not that uncommon among the pharaohs to paint scenes, engrave and paint scenes on the sides of their temples and their, their tombs and their palaces where they depicted themselves as not just being given the soul of life directly from a God status. But more than that, there's one scene we saw from Amenhotep III, who might, is a machlokas when the Exodus was, nobody's sure. It's either 13th century, 15th century BC. But Amenhotep III, it's interesting, there's a few things that sound paroish, like, like our paro. First of all, Amenhotep has a whole scene where he depicts scene by scene by scene, how basically the Immaculate Conception, how the God decided to have a child and chose this woman and, and inseminated her and she gave birth to Amenhotep and therefore he is literally the son of God. Like it's God's own son. And of course, then same old, same old, now I can do whatever I want. And, uh, and people saw if the most they could do is see like the walls of the temple and see these scenes and like with that impress them, you know, it wasn't exactly freedom of speech. By the way, when we were in Egypt recently, couldn't get a lot of um, like stuff on, like we couldn't get the news. I couldn't even get Al Jazeera. I couldn't get information. Like they let us have WhatsApp, but you couldn't download anything. Couldn't really Google much. And um, there's control of speech. It still is a bit of a dictatorship, with, even though LCC is a lot better than what was. But back in the day, you, they, the people only saw what the pharaohs wanted them to see. Nobody could read. It was hieroglyphics so that nobody could read. So they showed some scenes which people could see if they came to the temple to offer their tribute. And it was how great the pharaoh was, how he was given life by God, how he was in the tree of life, and how he was maybe even the son of God himself. And, uh, and that's what our Paro said about himself. They really began to take themselves very seriously and apply to themselves certain concepts that are really meant to apply to everybody. When we talk about the Eitzachayim in Torah, the tree of life, we're saying that every single human being, every human being has access to a connection to life, meaning eternal life, that if they choose to derive their 
to take their food or derive their sustenance, their emotional, spiritual sustenance from their eternal component, they can. We can get our sense of self from our eternal attachments, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everybody can eat from the Eitzachayim, so to speak. Um, here, let's scroll down a little bit. Here's something unique, very, very specialized to the Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim story. You know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a world, as we talked about this morning, with a physical world. And everything in the physical world is meant to teach us something. For example, when Hashem uses terminology that is physical, as we learned today, Dibra Torah, Balasham B'nai Adam, the Torah is giving us something that we should learn a deeper message from. So when Hashem says regarding humanity, right, that every human being is B'Tselem Elohim, it doesn't mean literal, Hashem has no body, it means with a God-like capacity to create. When Hashem says that the Jewish people Moshe is told to tell Paro, are Bini Bechori, my firstborn son. Nobody takes it literally that God, like the, the ancient Egyptians, which was ripped off by the Christians, had a physical son. There's no son of God in a physical way for Judaism. That's the ultimate kfira. So what does Hashem mean when he says firstborn son? So Rashi tells us, Benatbanim Talmidim. The more you learn about God, the more you identify with God, the more you understand God, you're called more of a child. You're more connected. You're more of an offspring. Ideologically, you think the same way as God. You're like an extension of God. You're a child. The more you understand God's ways, the more you are a child of God. So when Hashem you, uh, created the world, he created Misholem. He said, you know, I want them to understand what it means that you can have you can bear, you can create someone in this world who's an extension of you. Just like I created humanity and gave them the ability to think my thoughts to some level. They're almost an extension of me. I want them to understand that. So you know what I'm gonna do, Hashem says? I'm gonna make a muscle. I'm gonna give them the capacity to have children. And then they're gonna see in physical form what it means to have someone who comes from you, similar to you, maybe even talks like you, it learns from you and internalizes sort of your habits and your ideas. I'm going to give them a muscle. I'll let them have kids. And that will teach them what it means on a deeper level. So Hashem allows us to have children. This is an idea from the Shalah. So Hashem also builds us that we have hands. And Hashem says, I'm going to give them hands. And the way they're going to use their hand, and most people are going to be righties, which represents more strength. They're, they're going to use their hand to, to emphasize things, to hold tools and be powerful and build things also to dominate, to be able to hit things and smash things. And they're going to understand that a Baruch Hu also has the power to control things, to guide things, to do, to, 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 um, to have life history unfold as Hashem wants it to unfold. Hashem has the power to dominate, to control, to guide, to lead. So I'm going to give them arms and hands, and that's going to be the mushroom. So here come the Egyptians. Of course, human beings have physical power. But of course, we know that, again, if we're thinking Torah ways, that that's not real power. Power to control weaker people isn't the, what, what we call power. Okay. We really, when we talk about Hashem's power, we're talking about that HaKadosh Baruch Hu influences the way we think and it drives us and it compels us to look for purpose and look for meaning and self-control so that we feel good about ourselves. And, you know, power is not just taking your hand and, and beating someone up. That's very primitive. That's like a bully. However, their conception of power, all right, here you have the ubiquitous scene. It's all over everywhere in Egypt of the Pharaoh. And he's got three enemies crouching, kneeling down. If you could see their three different faces, a Nubian and a Kananite and like different enemies because the essence of power was how you defeated your enemies. And he's got his um, right, his, his left hand holding their head and his right hand okay, is extended. His right hand is extended and he's got a club in his hand, which unfortunately is not in this picture. And he's about to smash it down on the head of the enemies. And right here in hieroglyphics, here's another scene of it. On the, this is the um, what's called the Medina Habu Temple. Same scene. Here's the Pharaoh with his outstretched hand with the enemies that he's about to smash. Same scene on this side. And here in hieroglyphics, this little symbol that says Yad Chazaka in Egyptian, mighty hand. So when HaKadosh Baruch Hu 
took us out of Mitzrayim and he said to Moshe, I'm going to take him out with a Yad Chazaka. He was essentially telling, writing the Torah in a way to teach us. Because remember, Hashem told Moshe what to write. Hashem said, what I want to teach them is this. No more. You think Paro has a mighty hand because he can subdue some enemies? I'm going to show you something that's called a mighty hand. Watch this. Let me show you what's called a mighty hand. Mighty hand is when a Kaddish Baruch Hu, invisible, causes the chariots and the horses to run into the Yamsuf with the, with the Egyptian riders, and there's nothing they can do to stop it, and they are drawn to their own death because that's what they chose by locking themselves into this corrupted ideology and this evil, this evil lifestyle. So Hashem says, my right hand is when I cause people to come to their own self-destruction. My right hand is when I save those people who are innocent and I destroy the wicked. My right hand is not showing how powerful I am that I can smash everyone who's weaker than me. My right hand is how much I save those that know me. And I save those who are the victims and I save those who have been, who have been exploited and persecuted by the people that are in survival mode and survival of the fittest. That's called my right hand. So on the Yamsuf, the people say to Akadosh Baruch Hu, Yemincha Hashem your right hand Hashem really smashes the enemy. Okay. They knew that picture, but now they understood it in a whole different way. They forget about power with his right hand. Yemincha Hashem your right hand, really is the one that can demolish the enemies on a whole another scale. Okay. Here's another example. In ancient Egypt, they had a I guess a magical practice, all right, which they took their finger and they pointed at that which they wanted to cast a spell upon. All right, now we have a finger and we do point with our finger. And we're, when we point, it's to emphasize something. And Akadosh Baruch created us with fingers and pointers because Hashem wanted us to learn a lesson. And the lesson that he wanted us to learn is something about God himself and our relationship to God. And that is there are certain things that you can identify and point to and emphasize because they're important, okay? And we refer to that as etzba Hashem, the finger of God. Now, what did they do? They actually had this finger, this pointing finger thing that they use for their magic. And they tried to care, they tried to get the gods through this finger to cast spells on those things that they were afraid of. So in this picture, you see fishermen, and there's a lot of fish over here, which is fine, but right here is a crocodile. See so it to the left. And here, this guy and this guy, they're pointing their finger at the crocodile, almost like to do magic to eliminate the crocodile, because they some say they had magic. Ramam says it was not true, it was it was baloney, but. Some say it was true, but they, they tried to manipulate nature with their hand. So much so, here's another picture of a cow giving birth. And here's this guy with his finger pointing, again, casting a spell that, you know, the birth should go well. They even had, here's the original version of what we just saw, the cow giving birth with the guy with the finger. They even had this. This was a little of Odazara, the finger of God, literally a physical finger. It was a it was a religious object <laughs> that they had a finger, okay, and uh, then and the Khartoumim, right? When they saw they could not compete with what Moshe was doing, they said, "Oh, etzbe elokim, this is God's finger." But they didn't. We didn't mean that literally. They meant it literally in a way that uh, God had you know done this magic, this God of the Jews, and they worshipped the finger, okay. Interesting. We're not allowed to do anything like this. This is the second Dibra. No images of anything ever, 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 ever. Do not materialize things. We have to strive to have it abstract, to understand the concepts and not associate it with physicality. By the way, even if a person's davening and they're trying to have kavana, they're not allowed to imagine God, chas v'sholem as a person, chas v'sholem or anything else, some say the most you're allowed to imagine in your mind, the most is Yud Kevavke, the letters, that's it. Not even that. That's even not Hashem himself either. It's best not to do that either. So we're, we're trying to really mature and get away from this. Now, another form of Tumah is not so much their 
physicalizing everything. We're going to go into a different angle now, but it's the way they set up their lifestyle. You know, tame means atom, blocked. Remember the mechita? Means you can't see anything besides your own physical world. You can't see what's beyond. You can't see the metaphysical. You can't see the abstract. You can't see the spiritual. So when you look around the physical world, and again, you go into survivor mode, survival of the fittest, and that's the essence of tuma because the tuma of, of, of that lifestyle is, the, is ultimately the cruelty. It's the cruelty of the lifestyle. You know, I always mention, I saw this movie called Blind Sight many, many years ago about the paganism in Tibet. And, um, and the paganism, you know, they believe in all the various gods and there's a blindness epidemic in Tibet. A lot of kids go blind because they throw their dead bodies in the water and they have no hygiene and medicine and anything. Maybe it's better. This movie was about 15 years ago. Anyway, uh, so the kids go blind. So when the kids go blind, the parents who are farmers, essentially, rural, it's a rural area, they throw the kids out on the street because what's the use of a blind kid on the farm? So then there's footage in this movie of these people walking by these kids who are begging for money, alms, food, because they're starving on the streets. Um, and the people say, the snake god cursed you. I'm, I'm not going to interfere with the snake god. Uh, one lady, an old lady even screamed at them and she said, the snake God cursed you. You're not even good enough to eat your father's carcass. Cursed by the snake God. So this Toma, it's very cruel. You know, Avodazar is not just a crime against God. It's a crime against humanity. It's cruel. It's vicious. There's no healing the sick. There's no feeding the hungry because, hey, I'm not getting in the way of the gods. If this is what the gods want, who might interfere? right? There's no concept of being an agent of Hashem, Chesed, Rachamim. This is the Tumma. The Tumma is the cruelty, the evil. And the Ovde Kochavim, what we call the Ovde Vodazara, the ones that worship the nature, the stars, the sun, and all that, they were a brutal, brutal society. Vicious. This is the society of Rome came and the Jewish people came to change. So here, look at the priests. The priests, first of all, interesting, I didn't bring the picture, they were always bald. Um, but the main thing about the priests was that uh, their rituals were very, very secret and hidden, known to nobody. Notice that Sefer Vayikra, oh, there's so many halachas of the Bimishkan. Yeah, every single move the Leviah made and the Kohanim made was told to us. This was no secret ritual for the elite who had happened to also be the most richest because they got all the power and the money because everybody gave them tribute. We, Hashem came to radically shift this whole thing. So no, first of all, everybody's mamlechas koanim. Everybody has status with God. Second of all, the priests are public servants. They don't even get land, let alone becoming rich and enriching themselves and hoarding all the money, okay? And keeping everybody out and keeping everything secret. No, everybody knows exactly what the Levium are doing. Transparency. And the Levium work for us. The Levium work for us. They don't even have land. They don't even have property. We have to support them. They're poor. It's extreme opposite. Okay, so read here in number nine. Um, the shaving uh, is something interesting that shows up in um, when there is with, with, um, with Korach and with the first um, dedication of the Levium. I didn't bring the pasuk here. I don't know. Well, we'll get back to it. Um, we'll reach. We'll reach it in in in, in um, class. But here, um, so read the second paragraph. Priests linked with temples were the next most important class of people in ancient Egypt after the king. They too were regarded as gods. Okay, they were selected by the pharaohs. Okay, there was a priestly class. Powerful priesthoods were based in Memphis and Thebes. Uh, the high priest of the god Amun wore a distinct leopard skin draped over one shoulder. Okay, you'll see that in a lot of drawings or cheetah skins if it was from Osiris. Some priests became very rich. By the way, the church was the same story. The reason they started making celibacy much later in, after the, the church was founded is because the priests were getting so rich and keeping all the money. And the church was like, hey, we want the money. So they made the priests celibate and then they couldn't pass on their wealth to their kids. So then the church owned everything. Um, so here, the same priests became quite rich. They were enriched by the wealth accumulated from land given to them by different rulers over the years. Extreme opposite. We did not have an elite class. Yes, we did. We had a class that did the avoda, and they gave us a bracha, and they elevated the people, and they taught the people. They did berchas koanim, right, the bracha, but not an elite class that hoarded the wealth of the people and didn't let them anywhere near the temples and considered themselves obviously better. All right, so. Um, 
priestesses were linked with goddesses. Um, their god's harem, hello? Priestesses were god's harem, and they were known mainly for their dancing and sexual and musical making skills, very far from our priests, okay? Number 10, magic, okay? Um, the Torah makes us all leaders. Everybody's a king, everybody's a leader, okay? The priests and the magicians, these are fun, these, um, they show up a lot in the Paro story, in our Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim story as the Khartoumim, okay? There were all sorts of large-scale magical rituals. They were very important. They held, held very high roles. And of course, Moshe has to deal with all of these Khartoumim in the story. And yes, part of Egyptian culture was a huge emphasis on these Khartoumim, on these magicians. Um, and there are numerous statues of Sekhmet. Now Sekhmet was very important, okay? Sekhmet is a goddess who appears as a cow, but when that's when her name is Hathor, but when she gets really angry, she becomes a lion and her name is Sekhmet. We're gonna get back to her. And she was involved with magic, okay? She was associated with magic. There's magical medical texts, um, okay? That are for the use of any doctor of any Sekhmet priest. All right, so basically when you find out, uh, when you, oh, I don't know what this is doing here. When you, when you start hearing about the Khartoumim, you go into ancient Egyptian culture, you're gonna hear a lot about these magicians. And of course, Akadosh Baruch was showing them you're magicians, they're not, really, they're not really magic. Now here, look at this. One of the concepts of, you know, we always say that the Makos Hashem was like demolishing each God concept. So the first one was the Nile, which clearly was, a big deal. It was the source of their life. Shem turns it to blood. Second one is the frogs. This is the god Heket, the frog god, the fertility god. Hashem says, "Yeah, this is what you 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 uh, you have this concept that you know you life is is just bestowed on you with such such generosity by the gods." So let me show you about your your frog god. It's going to turn against you and it's going to attack you and it's going to ruin your life. And um, and uh, so Hashem sent the frogs and each successively each each um, maka was addressing one of their concepts now when you get to arbe okay it's just a very extreme example shem says he's going to send the locust and look at the pasuk shemos 10 15 it's going to cover the eye of the whole world of the whole earth the eye of the earth what's the eye of the earth so target uncle says ain shimsha it's the sun the sun was called the eye because it looks like an eye up in the heavens looking at the earth. The ancient of Ovdevodazara, they thought the sun was the eye of God that was looking at the earth. And Hashem was going to take the arba, the locusts, the bugs, and cover the sun, which means the sun god Amunre, who's the eye of right looking at the world, is going to be neutralized. Okay, so this is the god. Ray, Amun Ray. So basically the sun disk on his head, all right, that is the sun god. It came in different versions, basically the morning sun, the rising sun, the afternoon sun, the setting sun. But um, the sun disk is the god of the sun. And it's called the eye of Ray. Okay, um, Ray, this is the eye of Ray is um, the, uh, an off product, an offspring of the god of the sun. And it's associated with the illuminating presence of this majestic orb. The sun, as well as the moon, were often said to be the eyes of the gods. So Amun-Re was the, you see the Ankh in his hand, the life, and he was the sun. He was the eye of looking at the world. So Hashem says, okay, see ya, eye of the world, okay? Now, another god they had was the falcon, the bird with the big wings. All right, now Kaddish Baruch created birds. And again, they're a mushal. And we have massive birds. And Akadosh Baruch Hu uses the mushal of birds. He says, by Harsina, he says, Re'e, you see that I brought you here. Al-kanfei nesharim. Asher nasasi eschem al-kanfei nesharim. Ve'hevesi eschem elai. You see, I brought you here on the wings of eagles. I brought you to me. That was a mushal. Akadosh Baruch Hu often uses the mushal of a bird that we, and we use the mushal, we exist, tachas kanfei hashrina, beneath the wings of the shrina. When it gets to the base of Migdash, when Hashem in Devarim speaks to, to Binyamin, Sheva Binyamin says the base of Migdash is going to be in Sheva Binyamin, he says, like a bird, I'm going to hover above you, 
I'm like Shevet Pijaman with like the base of Mikdash, the Shechina. And I'm going to dwell between your shoulders. Look at the Pasuk here in Devarim 33, 12. I will dwell between your shoulders. Rashi, Chofei Falav means he covers him and protects him. How will Hashem dwell between Binyamin's shoulders? Chazal say that it is a topographic reference and in humility Hashem will dwell on Har Maria, which is at a lower elevation than the peaks that surround it. So Hashem, the base of English, will be in Har Maria. You know how we say Yerushalayim Harim Savivla, Harabais is really a little lower. So Hashem will dwell on the lower point and there'll be higher peaks Around it, that's called that Hashem will dwell on the shoulders of Binyamin. Look at the Pasuk. Binyamin Amar, Yedid Hashem. Yishkon lebetach alav, Hashem will dwell securely upon him. Chofev alav, hovering, so to speak, above him. Fluttering above him. Kol hayom, all day. Ben ketefav shochen. And he will dwell between his shoulders. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu has used this muscle of a bird, a perch, so to speak, and protecting us, Okay, and look, the Egyptians had a similar concept. They took a bird, literally. Here's the pharaoh, okay. It's in the Cairo Museum, the pharaoh Khafre, which built one of the pyramids, by the way. And um, he had literally a bird dwelling on his shoulders with the wings of the bird protecting him. Now they literally worshiped this. This was real. They, they served these statues. They fed and gave water and wine and makeup and perfume and served them and sacrificed to these statues, literally. Okay. And Akash Baruch Hu wants us to get way past that, to get the message. Here, this is King Tut's throne. King Tut died very young, by the way. In, some people say King Tut was the Pharaoh. Some people say it was Amenhotep. Some people say it was Ramses. Some, we're not sure. But Tut, when they found his body, they claim from the autopsies and all that and the Sikatskins uh, that he died of some sort of violent chariot accident. I don't know. So um, we don't know. We don't know. Some, you know, because I'll say the power didn't drown in the arm and all that. So, but anyway, look on his throne. You see these falcon wings? The concept of the bird protecting the king, protecting, gracing the king. Look at this. This is the temple ceiling at Karnak and look at this there's just bird these falcon wings all of these are just falcon wings and any god could be depicted within these wings but it showed like the concept of a bird protecting hovering right covering so Hashem created the bird for a muscle not to worship the bird okay by the way they found in Egypt mummified crocodiles mummified all sorts of animals that they used to mummify and probably worship also okay now, here's something just fascinating, just in terms of the language of the Torah. And um, this is really, maybe even you might want to, can, I mean, I threw it in here as part of the levels of Thumma, but it's not quite the, the same type of Thumma as, as we've been talking about. But, you know, when Yosef went to Paro to ask for permission to bury Yaakov, he said something to Paro that's like, what? That's not, is that right? In other words, he said, he said, on, on Avi Hispiani, my father made me swear, you know, I'm going to die. And he says, and he says, he said, my father made me promise that he's going to die and he wants me to bury him. In the grave, that I bug for myself, that I yewed for myself in Eretz Canaan, there you should bury me. So now can I please go up and bury my father? And we know that Yaakov was going to Mara Samachpela. So what does he mean, the, the, the grave that I yewed for myself, that I dug out for myself? So, you know, in Egypt, each of the pharaohs, they, they had their own tomb. No one got buried with their families. There is one later on, Ramses put all his kids, he had many, many, many children, he had a million wives. And he had like little cubbies for all his kids. That is true. But by and large, they all buried, made their own tombs and had their own mummies and totally by themselves. And, and yeah, we know we're buried with our parents. It always says, by Yosef El Amab, you go back to your people. You get buried with your people. Not alone in a tomb by yourself. And, um, and so here Yosef says to Paro, you know, my father said he, he wants to go to the grave, the tomb that he dug for himself. Something that would relate more to Paro, I guess, 
but um, but uh, and I'll talk about it. But it's interesting that Yosef would use this language. The Torah tells us, Hakadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe to write the Torah, uh, telling Paro something that makes sense to Paro. Just like we learn that uh, when Moshe said to Paro, "Let my people go for three days, just to, just to serve me, you know, come back," because Paro couldn't possibly process totally freeing his slaves. Here also, perhaps you know, they had this tomb obsession. And he couldn't process something that was different. He couldn't process being buried with your family, not in a tomb, in a cave somewhere, you know, um, because their, their mindset was so different. Um, these are not in particular order here. Nesachim, the wine with the carbonos. You know, for us, when we pour wine, we talk about wine as a, is given with the carbonos to show our devotion to God. Wine makes us happy. However, they used wine funerals, temple cults, death, 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 temple rituals, there to keep the deities happy, etc. Even the wine itself became um, elevated, extracted from its tumma, used for kiddush, used to be makadish, everybody, everybody's life, everybody's week, used for simchas, used for life itself instead of death. Look about temple and royal violence. Look at number 15 royal violence. Yeshayahu says, if you kill an ox and it's not for the right reasons, if it's a ritual you're going through, it's just to come to the temple and show how important you are, you're bringing a big ox. If it is not a physical manifestation of a deep internalized connection to God, I don't want it. Not only do I not want it, I consider it homicide. Shochet hashar make ish. As for those who slaughter the oxen, I consider it like you kill the person who sacrifice sheep and immolate, in other words, break the necks of dogs. Violence for God. I hate it. Okay. Who present as oblation the blood of swine, who offer incense and worship false gods. Yeshayahu is thundering against misusing the base of Migdash. He says, I will mock them. I will bring upon them the very thing they dread. HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not want this. Temple violence, read about it. In these rituals, the animals or objects were often seen as substitutes for humans to like show their sacrifice to God. Sometimes the objects were anthropomorphic in form as with many clay, stone, and wax figures used in excretion rituals. During the ceremonies, these figures were smashed, decapitated, mutilated, stabbed, spared, burned, and buried. And they did this to animals. They did this, they were cruel and violent. And Hashem and Yishayahu says, if you even bring an ox for a sacrifice, but it's not with the right kavana, I consider it homicide. Don't kill my animals for your own purposes. Okay, violence against mortals, against preternatural enemies were often combined in the rites. They, they were violent to people, okay? Look what it writes, early dynastic label appear, labels appear to depict violent rituals. All right, this is called temple violence. Now, what was our halacha, you guys, with the temple? No knife, no tool that you cut with was allowed in the temple. We take our knives off the table when we make brechas hamazan. It's the extreme opposite. They, the, the, the stones in the base of English were hewn by the shamir, worm because you couldn't use a cutting a knife okay extreme opposite of how we cherished life as opposed to violated life to keep the gods happy another amazing thing here is it's filling okay there's a cool link here for you to go on but you know that pharaohs oh i didn't where did i oh, i don't have it here i'm sorry there's a picture missing you know the pharaohs had the that snake over here they had a concept that they on their mind, right here in the seat of their thought, they had their snake, which means that it would show their power to spit fire, destroy their enemies, like their will, their will could could you know could could obliterate all their enemies in their path, like a vicious snake. Well, when we came out of Mitzrayim, Akadosh Baruch Hu said they got it right, but they got it wrong. Yes, every single person, their mind guides them and empowers them. And that's where we're gonna put tefillin. Every man's gonna put tefillin right here. And it's gonna have the parshios of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim and the empowerment of every human being. 
that everybody has a Tzelm Lukim and everybody has an Ashama and everybody is God's partner and God's agent, not just the Pharaohs. So away with the snake and we replace it with the Tefillin and Rabbi Kiva says Tefillin comes from the word Totafot, okay? And, um, and Rabbi Kiva says this word is from Africa, from Egypt, okay? It's a word also that was somehow embedded in their language, okay? Um, and it says that these are totafot that are zikaron, they're a memory between the eyes who recall Pesach and the miracle of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That's what you're supposed to remember, and that's the parshos when you put on this. And here's a bizarre picture of uh, the god, Os I think it's Osiris, with his little snake. And behind him is another sort of thing on her head that's like a stepped box. I'm sorry, I didn't put the the caption here with this come where this comes from. I'm going to fill it in. So you see, they already had this wearing the things on their on that spot. Again, it was for themselves. Um, other, I have another section here which I'm not going to do now called Pshuta Shalmikra, which just shows depictions in the wall that really help us understand the shot beautifully. Um, not so much to the degree of Tuma as we were seeing before, but more just simple explanations of shot, what things were. Also, of course, uh, distorted a little bit, but a little bit of a different category. So I'm going to save that for next time. But um, when we talk about the Egel, we're going to talk about the cow hat where you'll get some more pictures. Um, we'll get so you know, we'll, 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 we'll throw this in a little bit here and there as we continue. But for now, I'm going back to the chat. Um, over here, this is some, some examples of how Kaddish Baruch Hu cleans up, so to speak, our distorted uh, I, uh, concepts and weans us away as we learned today, like the Ramam says, to a much more sophisticated way of understanding things. Okay, almost makes you want to clean for days. <laughs> um, you don't see the pictures? Oh yeah, there they are, okay. Um, and not un enough. I am, yes, I am in my writing. Beautiful. Um, is the peace sign that many people exhibit with their two fingers pointing, is that like the symbol finger of Hashem? I don't know, but I got to tell you the Kohanim, when they go like this, they're also giving the mushal of, you know, the Kanfeshchina. Um, it's a very ubiquitous mushal. Um, this Kohanim are severely punished if they corrupt the Kahuna, like hoarding the offerings. Exactly. Is a veil of dealing in magic taken from Egyptians' decadence? Yes. I mean, the Torah tells us you now that have any of the lifestyles of the Egyptians, of the Amori, of all these ancient cultures. We are not allowed to copy their lifestyle. Other than what we learned in the Rambam, the certain, certain aspects of what they were familiar with, like Karbanas and that, were cleaned up and devoted to Kaddish Baruch Hu, so they could kind of wean them off slowly. Um, it's like saying the god of evil, Ra. Well, the sun god was Amun Ray. Yeah. Um, I was told you don't take the knife off. Yeah, people do take the knife off the table on Shabbos. Um, and um, a few different, there's a few different reasons. We talk about Yerushalayim. Some people say you don't want to be so distressed at the Chorban Yerushalayim that you might take the knife and hurt yourself or the, the table's like a Mizbeach. We know that we didn't have knives in, again, in the building of the base of English. They had this Shamir, this little, this little um, worm that cut out the that cut out the stones. So there's a tremendous amount of difference, um, not only in the physicalization of their spiritual concepts, but really the essence even more important, more important, the real essence of Tuma is the way they set up their societies, the injustice of their societies, the devaluation of the regular person, the survival of the fittest, and the just, just um, unfair advantages given to the few. You know, and we're going to see when we learn about Shemitah and Yovel and all sorts of halachas, we'll bring this in to show the difference, the big, big difference between them and us. You know, um, I give you one example from Shemitah and Yovel. We know that in Shemitah, all debts are erased. So there was a concept in ancient Egyptian culture where when the king would assume, the new king would assume the throne in order to ingratiate himself with the masses, and to weaken the noble class, the wealthy class, 
he would absolve all the loans. So all the nobles who had all this outstanding money lost their money. They were weakened. All the masses that were poor, the serfs, the people working, they were very, very now felt very grateful to this new king and would, they would earn their loyalty. So only for very self-serving reasons would the king absolve debt. And of course, he wouldn't suffer. However, come contrary to that, every seven years of Shemitah, and all debts are absolved, and all land goes back to where it, where it started from, and there's a balancing out of the playing field. And this is not to make any king powerful. This is just the way Hashem set it up on a regular basis, that there should be a level of equality, that people should have leverage, people should be able to start on their two feet, that there shouldn't be this slow polarization of, of groups of, you know, in the society, some to the rich side, some to the poor side, okay? That, that type of halacha, the halacha of miser, they used to have to give 33% to the priests. Hashem said, no, 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 10%. 10% always goes back, goes back much earlier than Egypt to Yitzchak. But they took the concept of tribute, right? Yaakov gave miser. They took the concept of tribute and, and essentially their societies were divided into, this is Robert Berman's language, I guess, tribute bearers and tribute receivers. And tribute was very, very high, not 10%, 35%. Eventually, everybody was just a bunch of serfs on the land of the temple or the land, you know, the king's land. And, um, and so they reduced that also. Here's another thing Rambam says, another thing. They had concepts of Tamantara. The idea of Tamantara is till the modern age, you know, in Africa, certain primitive societies, they have crazy Tuma obsession. The, the woman with Anita has to be in her own house and you can't touch anything she touched and crazy halachas. Rambam says the Torah came and it did away with all of that. It simplified it. It made it, yes, there is a concept called Tomei Atum, but it's very simple. Okay, it's not that complicated. A woman's Anida, a certain amount of days, she goes to Mikvah, it's over. No more, not a lot of, you know, endless, endless, endless confusing halacha <coughs> that, um, you know, that, uh, that made everything so stringent and so much more complicated. Now it's true, we took some chumras on ourselves of her chakas and things like that. But nevertheless, Ramam says it's so much less complicated and intense and labor intensive than it is in all these other cultures. Kodesh Baruch Hu came to straighten it all out, make it normal, make it part of, part of our spiritual life, but in a normal, manageable way. And, and so a lot of the Tumma, we'll just end with this idea, is in the way they viewed other people and how they treated other people and the suffering they brought upon other people. And that's a lot of how safer, you know, we always think what's safer by Yikra, it's all these laws, but Midbar are so many laws. No, these laws are very important. They reestablish justice and dignity. They give back dignity to people. All the Mishpatim that come right after Hasina is, is Parshas Mishpatim, Yisro Mishpatim, tons of laws that are restore the dignity to the average person. Give you one more example, and then we're gonna end. The king, no one got near the king. The king was God's own either son or whatever. No one got near the king. Our halacha in Devarim, you know who gets to, you know who you can, who's a king? You know who could become a king? You didn't need any of these immaculate conception stories. The Pasuk says, Melech me achicha, anybody from your brethren, any Jew. Now, once David became king, Hashem promised David, that will, the Malchus will stay in his family. But before David, anybody. And you want to know something else crazy? Look at Ramam Hilchos Malachim. You can't have a lot of horses. You can't have a lot of wives. It was such a different, it was such a different ethic. It was such a different system. More than that, do you know that any single Jew could literally take a king from Malchus based David to court? You could literally sue a king from Malchus based David? It's unbelievable. The system was so radically different, so utterly progressive. And that's really the essence of the, the you know, where we extricated, uh, Hashem extricated us from Tumma, because the ultimate Tumma is when it translates into, into the, the dehumanization of other people. That's the essence of Tumma. All right. My throat's already dry from talking. Um, Konim cannot go near a dead body, which is opposite the rituals of death. Correct. 
not even the closest relatives. No, the king would have to read, the Kohen Gadol certainly couldn't go near his closest relatives. The king would have to read the Torah to Bnei Yisrael, and he would read the Aseris Adibros, right? And the king had to stand up for the Navi. Yeah, and the Navi could give the king Musar. It's completely different, totally different. Um, uh, we should have a class trip to the Brooklyn Museum that is mostly Egyptology and very similar. Oh, you know, interesting. That's interesting. And also the Met has some a whole Egypt section. So maybe Pesach, we should do it. Um, all right, everybody. I'm stopping the share so I could see you all. Um, so I'll see you on the Q&A. More of these ideas will come in as we learn the Egil and this and that and different aspects of the halachas, of, as we said, in Vayikra. But that's a little bit of what we saw. And um, we will learn more about that. You can look at the, your documents, section three, Pshuta Shul Mikra, uh, really interesting things that you'll see. Um, anyway, next Monday night, we resume David Amela. All right, guys, see ya. Take care.